Welcome to the University of Young Entrepreneurs. My name is Brandon Adams, lifestyle entrepreneur and inventor, passionate about helping others with creating something great and becoming unforgettable. Each week, we discuss helpful tips on becoming a successful entrepreneur and interview other entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Our goal is to help take your business and lifestyle to the next level. Now let's get started. This is episode number five of the University of Young Entrepreneurs. In this episode, we have Jeff Amarine, who is a startup junkie and professional angel investor. He has served six years as a United States Air Force officer working in Strategic Air Command as a missile launch officer and later in research and development acquisition. Jeff graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1984 and holds a Master of Science in Operations Management from the University of Arkansas. He's one of the key leaders nationally involved with the creation of lasting regional venture startup ecosystems. He has held senior leadership positions in eight startup ventures, three Fortune 500 companies, and has more than 60 angel investments in early stage ventures. He now leads Startup Junkie Consulting, a venture catalyst company that helps drive the startup movement in emerging regions. Do you want advice on how to make a startup succeed or you need investment for your company? Jeff's your guy. This guy has so much information. I'm really excited about today's show. We got a lot of information for you guys, especially if you're a startup and you're looking for money. He tells you how to get it and what steps you need to take to go there. So, before we get started, I want to do a shout out to our sponsor, Arctic Stick. Arctic Stick is a new innovative product used to cool and flavor your bottled beverage. I like to work out on a regular basis, and I don't know about you guys, but I don't like to have warm water. Arctic Stick will fit inside any bottled beverage. It'll keep your drink colder to the last drop. Not only that, you can put any kind of liquid inside. You can twist the top, drop it in, and flavor your drink, or you can use it as a shooter. Pop the top and take a shot. Check out what they got going on at Arctic Stick. Check out their website at www.arcticstick.com. That's A-R-C-T-I-C-S-T-I-C-K.com. Be prepared to take on your summer with Arctic Stick. Let's get started in today's show. Today on the University of Young Entrepreneurs, our special guest is Jeff Amarine. Jeff has a wide range of experience working with startups, many leadership positions, and also with funding startups. So today, I just want to start out by hearing more about Jeff, and then we'll go into detail about what it takes in the process of having a startup and how to get funded. So Jeff, tell me about how you got started and what it led to getting you where you are today. Brandon, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You know, I, lo I love everything about startups. It's been kind of an addiction, uh, ergo the name in my company, Startup Junkie Consulting. But uh, startup, being a startup founder was not something that came to me when I was young. I, I'd always had jobs. I mowed lawns. I, I would say I was pretty entrepreneurial, but I came from a family that had a long dedication to military service. And so until I took a new ventures class, actually in some graduate work, uh, at the tail end of my time in the Air Force, which would have been around 1990, I never really thought about having my own business. But that new ventures course that I took in college really kind of opened my eyes to the possibility. I always felt like I was kind of a maverick, and I was interested in doing things that had a degree of risk and that were hard to do. And being a startup founder really scratched that itch. So 
I spent about five years at Westinghouse after I left the military from 1990 to 1995. I got a lot of really good business and technology experience. We yep. built satellite systems. Oh, wow. And did a lot of international business. And during that time frame, I figured at the ripe old age of 31, 32, that it was time for me to launch out and do my own thing. And so that's, that's what sent me on the path of beginning to do uh, startups. Now, I'm fascinated, people that work internationally. Mm-hmm. What, what are some big things you learned when you worked internationally with different businesses? Well, first, first of all, it's hard. It's hard yeah. because you can't assume that, that Western culture and contract law apply anywhere else. And so you have to have somebody local in any of these markets that can really kind of be a guide and somebody that you can trust because it's, it's not like going from state to state in the U.S. There really is a whole different set of laws, cultural norms. It was really difficult and also very exciting. And literally for about a 10-year period did business in every continent aside from uh, Antarctica. Oh, wow. Everywhere. We, we, were, we were everywhere trying to do deals. So I'm guessing you can speak multiple languages. Then. No, and that was something that I've regretted. So, so in the case when we did a lot of work in Asia, I actually had a partner who was the son of a Korean diplomat who was fluent in, in English and Korean. He could also speak some Chinese. And so he was key. You have to have somebody that can do that or else you really don't know what's going on in that kind of setting. If I had one regret about any of that, it, I would have liked to have been... Uh, well-spoken in multiple languages. Never had the talent for it, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah, it's difficult. I I tried learning Spanish and almost got a minor in it, but they say, I mean, you got to practice it, but the only way to really learn it is if you're forced right into it. Forced to to use it. When you you start dreaming about it is when you know how to speak it. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right. So I'm I'm fascinated with startups, and you've worked with many different startups. What would you say or the majority of obstacles or struggles startups have in the first few years of getting out there? The, the, fr- the first thing that a lot of times is, is they haven't, startups haven't done adequate customer development. They haven't really done the, the hard yards of finding out if they're solving a problem that anyone would actually pay for. So, and that, that's part of what the whole lean startup, lean canvas uh, methodology tries to enforce. The field of dreams approach where you build something because you love it is a lot more difficult. You hope that it people is. will rally around it. But that's one of the big obstacles. You really got to be very disciplined about figuring out a way to iteratively test your assumptions at low cost and at low risk before you spend a whole lot of money building something that no one will buy. It's true. I mean, testing the market before you invest all your money exactly. and with crowdfunding right now, that gives you ability to not invest much money and test and see if anybody even wants your product. Absolutely. And that's That's what I try to tell people too. I mean, it's hard. You have a sentimental value of something you come up with and you just want to go forward with it and think you can succeed no matter what. Yeah. The the other thing too is, is startup founders need to be really be reflective on what their skills are, what they're good at and not be afraid to surround themselves with people that know what they don't know. Exactly. Now, 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 figuring out how to build that trust and partner with the right people is always a trick, but that's the other thing, too. You've got to be, a lot of times, if, 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 you're, if you've got enough ego and enough confidence to do a startup, you assume that you're going to be good at everything because you've been a high achiever, yeah. and, and it's almost never the case. So you need to find people that know what you don't know. Mastermind group. Exactly. That's what I said. That's say. exactly right. So what are two to three things that you would say are key to running a successful business? You got to be really tenacious. You've got to remember that cash is king. You, you know, every startup founder better know what their cash balance is and what their cash burn rate is. A lot of times, if you let that piece of it get out of control and you don't mind that part of it, 
it's very difficult to do anything else. That determines how much runway you have. And then I'd say the bottom line is just be prepared for the, the contingencies. You know, if you, if you enter into a startup with the idea that everything is going to cost more and take longer, you're never going to be disappointed, and you'll be able to plan for the contingencies. Those are, those are some key points. It's said. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I was going to say what we're talking about, the mastermind group, mm-hmm. and working with different people that know things that you don't. How do you know how to pick the right people when you're doing a startup? Because yeah. It's yeah. hard to find great employees. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, the, the general rule you'll hear a lot of smart people like Guy Kawasaki and others talk about is hire A players, hire people that are smarter than you. You can, you can manage that in a way of kind of having a, a uh, fly-before-you-buy mindset, and that is you give people a 90-day trial, you bring them in as a 1099, you see if they work out, you hold them to very specific milestones that are going to prove that they have the right stuff. And if they don't, you know, you, you, you hire slowly and you fire quickly. So that's, I like that. that's a, another way of aligning yourself. And the other thing is find mentors that are interested in being mentors just because they've walked in, in the path that you're about to walk in. And I, I know exactly. It's, it's hard. And what I got to say about that is how do you feel, I mean, about mentors that you have to pay? And there's many consultants out there that charge you a monthly basis or have a percentage what do you say to other entrepreneurs out there that are looking for mentors? I would, I would run from people that are looking to get paid because the one thing I learned a long time ago, and this is why we set our model up the way we did at Startup Junkie Consulting, is customers that have no money are really terrible customers, and that's all startups. And so if you want to serve them, you got to find another way to get paid. And the way we did it, and I'm not saying this is the way everyone should do it, was we went to other large companies, the foundations, the government agencies, the economic development folks, and said, you know what, we've got to have the startup movement. They can't afford to pay for people like us that are, you know, would be prohibitively expensive, like, like senior consultants typically are, but they need the help. So that's where that little bit of small amount of government largesse, of foundation involvement, and of large companies that see the value of keeping startup talent in the area can really make a difference. And if you do that, then... Everything we do, for example, is completely free to the startups we work with. Now, what we ask for, the quid pro quo, the exchange, is we're going to put you through a rigorous process. If you're not willing to go through a very well-defined lean canvas process, if you're not willing to do the customer development, if you're not willing to be coachable, then you're probably not a good fit. You wean them out quick. Exactly. So it's a self-selection process where you say, hey, we'll give you all the time you need as long as you do your part. That's great what you yeah. guys do because yeah. there's so many entrepreneurs out there that don't know where to go. Exactly. And I certainly did it three years ago. And the the mistakes you make, the money you spend, yep. I mean, I've learned a lot, but I wish I would have found something like you guys a long time ago. That was my life. I mean, that part of the reason why we built this model the way we built it is the first startup I did back in the middle 90s, there was nobody. I mean, there was no peer-to-peer mentoring. There were no pitch contests. There was, there was not even really any active uh, score group or anything like that. There really was no one. You were totally in a wilderness by yourself. Now there are these kinds of groups where you can learn from your peers and you can learn from people that have, are a little more senior that have been through it. Yeah, I can't imagine how you got by back in the day. Yeah, it was hard. And you, you step on a lot of landmines and you know, end up blowing an arm or a leg off on a fairly regular basis. So I want to go into, for startups, uh, a lot of startups need investment. They don't don't know where to get the money, and most banks anymore, I mean, for a startup, it looks very risky to them, yep. and they can't afford to give them any money or loan them money. So what tips would you give to startups on who, uh, what angel investors yep. are looking for? What yep. are they looking for at a business? And 
First of all, make sure, you know, learn, learn, learn the jargon. Read a book like Venture Deals, for example, that Brad Feld wrote, which kind of gives you the jargon. You have to know the language of early stage investment. And you're right. Most commercial banks for startups without attachable assets are a null set. Don't waste your time. Until you've got a track record for two or three years, unless you've already got a big balance sheet or somebody that will sign for you, banks are a complete waste of time in terms of early stage money. So then if you turn to the angel groups, look for angel groups that are populated by people that have actually done it before. It's not to say there's not old money people and trust fund people that might be good, but the best angel investors are the ones that have been good operators. They've built companies, they've exited companies, they made a little bit of money. They can be more strategic than just the money itself. Most states have pretty well-defined angel groups. Flyover states tend to have fewer, so you have to be really careful about who you, who you talk with. What angel investors are looking for are great management teams, first of all. That doesn't necessarily mean a management team that's done it five times before. That means managers and leaders and startup founders that are really passionate about what they're doing, that are going to leave no stone unturned, and that are coachable, that will listen to some advice. And that doesn't mean they take every bit of advice they get, but they'll listen. They'll synthesize what they learn, and then they'll move forward. So the best thing, the best thing I can say is solve a big problem, understand your market, understand a competitive landscape, learn how to communicate succinctly, learn how to do that 60-second elevator pitch in a way that you get to the next meeting. Communication is probably 50% of it. And anytime you communicate, back up your story with stats. So if you make an assertion and you're talking to an investor, don't use adjectives because adjectives equal opinions. Use stats that they can't refute. This is how many customers we signed up. This is the size of the market. This is what we've learned about our competition. These are the number of people that have the problem that we're trying to solve. Stats carry the day. So a quantitative backup for your assertions is like gold when you're talking to angel investors. That's really good advice. Yeah. Uh, and you're talking it's good to have at least a two- to three-year track record. What advice do you give to entrepreneurs out there that have put a lot of their own money yeah. and they don't have a track record, but they're at the point now where they need some more to move forward? What advice would you give to them who haven't had any sales yet with their yeah. company? Yeah, pre-revenue is tough. Pre-revenue stuff. And in, in, you can do things more cost-effectively now than ever before, just about anything, both tangible products and digital online stuff. It's, I mean, it's getting more and uh, more cost-effective to do. The main advice is go prove a few things as cheaply as you can. So typically, the funding continuum kind of looks like this. You come out of your own wallet first, and you have to. You have to. You, every, you're not going to get anywhere running to the market with an idea where you haven't put any of your own money or time into it. The second thing is you go to the triple F round. That's friends, family, and fools. The people that will bet on you because it's you. They're emotional investors, but you got to kind of trap that. you got to tap that part of the market as well. And then the third thing is if you've proven a few things, you've gotten some initial customer interest, you've built some momentum, you've, you've done a Kickstarter campaign where people have pre-ordered, anything that validates that there's real demand, then you're probably ready to talk to angel investors. Angel investors in general today are more conservative than they were five or ten years ago because they can be. There's more deals that get to revenue quicker today than ever before. So, so that, they're, they're looking at their time span, how they can get their money the quickest? Yeah, I, it depends. It depends, right? Angels will be pretty patient. It's unlike pre-2001 tech bubble. Angels realize that there's not an IPO market. So a win for an angel, for example, is to get somebody to a Series A venture capital round. 
and the win at that point is, do they get to the point where somebody might come along and buy them because it, it supports a portfolio that a larger company has? So most times, the exit strategy that angels or VCs are looking for is acquisition. If, as a startup founder, you don't think you ever want to exit your company, you're looking for a different kind of money. You might still be able to do something that would be based on a royalty, like a gross percentage of, of revenues. There's a lot of royalty-based deals that are tied to the top line that can be interesting, but they really are only interesting to the investor once there's already some proof that you've got cash flows. You're not yet bankable because you don't have the track record, but you're selling some things that, that you know you can prove that they can tie that royalty to your top line and still get paid back. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's a lot of good info. And uh, for an investor, what what do you say? What are they thinking when, let's say, I'm going to, going to pitch a product to them mm-hmm. and they're sitting across the room? What are the three main things they have in their mind right away? Do I believe in this person? You know, is it is it somebody that is really passionate, really tenacious about what they're doing? Do you have kind of an encyclopedic understanding of your product and the competitive landscape? You know, if, if you get into Q&A, question and answer is where these things are won or lost. It's not during a really slick pitch. If you can't answer detailed questions about what the competitive landscape looks like, what other people are doing in the market, what your costs are, how the cost will change over time, uh, you got to have an encyclopedic knowledge of your marketplace, of your competition, and of your product. And so if you can do that in a way where you're, you're pretty well schooled and they know that you know enough to know everything you can possibly know about what you're trying to do, yep. you'll do well. Now, if you don't know something, the one thing you don't want to do is try to, just try to give a, you know, a BS answer, right? You, you really need to, if you don't know something, it's legitimately something you didn't think about, you find out. You tell, tell them, them the I, truth I, and yeah, say, you just find say, out. You just say, hey, it's a great question. We hadn't considered that. We'll find out. And then be responsive. You know, investors are investing in the leadership team and not the product. Sometimes they could care less about the product. If it's in a market that's half a billion dollars or bigger and your total addressable market is pretty sizable, what they care about is this a team that can win. And it doesn't mean you've done it 10 times before. It may mean, yeah, this is really an aggressive team. They're leaving no stone unturned. They're going to be scrappy. They're things yeah, that's that so true. Yeah. I always say for an idea or product or anything, it's not only the product, but it's yeah. it's the person behind it. Because without the person behind it, they're not they're not going to get that above yeah. Yeah. all that extra work. Because people are going to say no many times. That's exactly right. And you need a strong person to keep moving forward. And by the other the other side of that is a founder. You're going to hear no a lot. You're going to hear no more than you can imagine. Mm-hmm. You've only got to get to yes once, right? So get used to hearing no, and don't take it personally. You know, it might not have been the right stage. It might not have been the right fit. Investors tend to want to invest in things that they understand because the things they understand and in, in segments where they have expertise, they can be helpful. And they know that that's good leverage on their money if it's, they're not just writing a check and saying, see, you come back and report, but they're actually able to open the doors. You have to have thick skin as a founder because you're going to hear no a lot. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I've heard no so many times. <laughs> and when, when you hear that yes, it's like yep. a yes. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, kind of a little side note for when you're talking investment, I have so many people say to me with my product mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. others see with a product, well, what if somebody wants to buy it out? And people think that your company or your product's going to get bought out. And mm-hmm. just tell the viewers, how rarely does that even happen when a company does get bought out or an idea? Well, and it depends on, it depends on how you, ideas don't get bought out. 
Yeah. Ideas are commodities. There's, and in fact, people want to be so careful that someone will steal their idea. There's a seven billion to one chance that somebody else has already thought of your idea. So ideas are commodities. What matters is execution. I and, agree. And if you position, the thing about it is you want to build a great business. And if you build a great business that's disruptive in the market, the opportunity to exit and get bought out will come. It will definitely come. You also want to go into the, if, if you're wanting to be a serial entrepreneur, you don't build a product company and say, well, this is a company I'm going to stay with for 20 years, typically. It's more of, this is cool, and I want to do this 10 more times. That's not for everybody. It's perfectly fine to build a lifestyle business that you want to stay with forever. It's just not something where you're going to attract investors that are looking for scalable investment opportunities yeah. that have exits within five to 10 years. Going in, you got to know you exactly. Know. Do you, you want to get bought out, or do you want to go IPO, or do you want to live point. your life with Think it? about the end point. Start with the end point and work your way back. What's the end point? If that's five years or 10 years, what does that end point look like, and how do you work back to today? It's a smart way to think about it. Smart, smart. In today's day and age, things are changing. We have the internet, e-commerce, social media. Things are so much faster. We're mm-hmm. in a whole new world. What things would you say would set people up for success in the next few years in business? What are some key things to look at in today's day and age? Uh, figuring out how to use all the free sources you have available. So, so growth hacking, this idea of growth hacking, using social media, uh, optimizing your search engine, uh, optimizing the SEO, SEM piece, all that stuff you can get to for free. Having people write stories about you, having people do influencer marketing, uh, it, do all the free stuff. Don't spend money on things you don't need to spend money on. The whole idea is, is you got to be quick, you got to be tenacious, and you got to take advantage of the things that are free. That's that would be. I I agree 100. Yeah. percent yeah. I I learned that the hard way by mm-hmm. spending a lot of money. Yeah. And over the years, what I tell people now, especially for new ideas, the name of the game is getting as far as you can with spending the least amount of money, yep. and try to figure out things. I mean, really think outside the box. Yeah. Exactly. And they work the best, especially when you get publicity. No doubt about people it. People don't realize if you just keep annoying people or uh, yep. be persistent, you can get into publicity. I mean, I got on USA Today by doing a tenacious act of giving a pitch on Shark Tank casting call to everybody yep. in line because yep. I saw cameras. So most people would pay thousands of dollars to get on USA Today. What yep. I do, I did some random act. That was a little nerve-wracking, but hey, I did it, and look what happened. So That's the best kind of PR and advertising ever. And you got to be willing to kind of get outside of yourself to send those tweets, to write those blog posts. Yep, it's it's really true. And I'd say the other thing is, there's a book I really like that was written by a guy by the name Jay Bear. He's kind of a key influencer, thought leader around social media, and it's called Utility, spelled Y-O-U-Tility. Look it up because he says start when you're thinking about selling anybody by being helpful. Figure out how to help that person solve a problem. It might yep. even be related directly to your product or service. But that philosophy in a startup is hugely important. So if you provide information that people want to follow on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Pinterest, on Facebook, y- your, your cost is going to be very small. But your possibility of influencing people and, and creating a tribe around what you're doing is really high. Take advantage of it. Yeah, social media is big. It and is. The one thing I want to ask is... With social media, you can reach so many people, Mm -hmm. and by boosting posts and actually investing in paying for posts, Mm -hmm. how do you feel about investing money for marketing in social media with Facebook? You got to run tests, right? So, so there's you you kind of need to do A/B testing. So, if you're going to boost something, 
define how much that you want to spend on that and see what kind of return you get. Did it increase the number of followers? Did it increase the number of inquiries you got in email? Have a way, try to figure out how to measure the results of everything that you try to do when you think about spend. And if there's not a way to measure it, you probably shouldn't do it because then you're just kind of throwing... You you're know, gambling. Exactly. Russian roulette. I mean, you're exactly. really If you can measure it, for sure, figure out how to make the most out of that small ad spend and doing those sorts totally of things. Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've spent some time working on that. Yeah. And if you can target a certain market mm-hmm. and really see what your effectiveness is, you exactly. can really make some good return on it. Exactly. So I want to talk more about you and learn about your regular habits and you as a person. So first off, do you have any daily rituals or habits that you do on a regular basis that help you become more effective and productive in your day? Yeah, it's, so it's it's a good question. And and I would I'd like to say I'm probably not as as much into a routine as I might have been at one time when I was in the military, but I do still enjoy a lot of rigorous physical activity. So trail run, trail running, getting on the treadmill, uh, working out with weights, whatever, it kind of clears my mind. There's a lot of stress. A lot of times, even today, my days will be between 10 and 18 hours long. I kind of thrive on that level of activity, yeah. but I've got to have a way of decompressing. So having a regular workout is definitely a key to clearing my head. Do you usually work out in the morning? I do. A lot of times in the morning, if I have time, I'll get up real early and I'll, yep. I'll spend time on the treadmill. I don't like running in the cold anymore. On the weekends, I'll yeah. go for a trail run because I'd much rather run on a trail uh, away from the asphalt, you know, pounding yeah. around the asphalt. But I'd say physical activity has always been key to me. And when I, when I go for periods of time without that, it, it's, it sets me into a funk that I'm just no good. So I have to do that. It's amazing when it yeah. does. I mean, yeah. I wake up every day at six, I go work out and it, it's like a, a power drug. It's like money in the bank, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And it feels so good. And I was talking a couple of weeks ago about the power of habit and how doing things consistently mm-hmm. on a regular basis allows you to be more productive. Yeah. And you get a rhythm of doing things. And I said, working out is one of the biggest things. Yeah. So it, you get that serotonin rush and you get that productive day. So allows you to be more efficient with your time because you're more alert. Yeah. You can, it's, it kind of clears your head. And, and time is the one resource you never have enough of in a startup. And it's something that, that in order to manage multiple things, you really have to be clear-headed. It's beating the time. Yeah, time exactly. Is every, time is money. It is. It definitely is. So over life, I mean, throughout your life, you've had a lot of different things you've done. Sure. What are your biggest lessons you've learned about yourself since you started working with startups and since doing angel investing? Yeah, I would say the key thing is, is if you think about it, so I'm 52 years old, you know, a little bit of the statistics there that might be interesting. 52 years old, four kids, two grandkids, one more on the way. Congrats. Wow. Yeah, thanks. Uh, two, two branches of military service. I was a Naval Academy guy, and I spent six and a half years in the Air Force. For me, uh, I need sort of constant stimulation, and that's what I like about startups. I was good at starting startups. I was not great at running startups once they got to a certain point. So what was important to me was to make that transition to a point where I could help lots of startups and not do the same thing every day. Uh, when I've worked in large corporate settings, one of the things that, that always wears on me after three or four years or, or a little less time is it feels like the same thing over and over again. I agree. So what I look for, what I look for in startups are really a couple of different things. One is, like I said, you look for the passion and the tenacity. You look for somebody that that will be focused enough to get to those milestones to where they outgrow themselves. And then you look for someone that will have the wisdom to understand it's time to hand off the baton. If you think about startup founders 
and it's not always true, but it's often true. The people that do the very early stuff are the adrenaline junkies. They're the ones that like to do take the qualified risk, and it doesn't concern them. They, yeah. They're the ones that, and this is overused, but they'll they'll jump off the cliff with the parachute parts and figure out how to put it that's together so on true. the way down. That's a good way to put it. There's also that group that's really good that can take the companies to the next stage, where they don't really they're not really the imaginative ones that want to take the initial start. They're what I would call the growth managers or the growth leaders. They're the ones that can pick it up after it's gotten through that initial stage and take it to the next level. It's important to know where you fit in that continuum. And then the last, once a company's mature, are more of uh, what I'd call the crank turners, not necessarily an, an, an endearing term, but somebody that will be comfortable with the necessary levels of bureaucracy you need as you get bigger. If you're an adrenaline junkie, stay in that spot. Know when to take your exit from the company. Know when to hand, hand the reins over to somebody else. Perfect example would be when the founders of Google brought in Eric Schmidt. They needed adult supervision. Uh, a perfect example of the other side of that is Steve Jobs. He kind of got escorted out initially and then Love came back guy. in. He came back in because he needed to reinvent the company. They needed sort of the startup madman in there to bring the new products online. But it's important to know what your spot is uh, in, in the continuum of leading the, the company. That's, those are some of the things that I've learned. I learned about myself that I was not great once a company got to a certain stage. Yeah. But I love the thrill of finding a new opportunity, putting the team together, getting the initial investment in peace, and getting it to market, and then handing it off to someone else. So when you got to that point of handing off, did you sell the company off, or did you just it's, Yeah, in some instances we sold. In some instances we failed because I didn't yeah. do it quickly enough. Uh, I learned a lot about the right time to exit and how to size up uh, potential acquirers and whatnot. So it's, it's just picking that exit point where the handoff is key. In some instances we'd, we'd get something started, we'd get the investment, and he'd hand it off to somebody that could could run the company better than me from that point forward. Yeah. And I never had a problem doing that. How many so. companies have you... Eight, this is the eighth, actually. Wow. Startup Junkie is the eighth. So, And all of them have had a degree of, of angel, VC, uh, or public money in them. None of them were completely bootstrapped all the way through. They all had outside capital of one kind or another. What would you say would be your most successful investment to date? My most successful investment to date in recent memory, rather than going way back, would be the investment in Acumen Brands, Country Outfitter. Uh, this was a Familiar with it. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're actually right across the street from where we're sitting the taping here, their, their, oh, wow. uh, their retail presence. But it was, it was, it's an interesting story. And actually, John James is an interesting guy to, to interview the founders. This is a doctor who, decide, who put himself through every, every step of school by doing e-commerce or online ventures. And then when he got to his residency, he decided, no, nah, I'd much rather just be that, you, you know, a, a startup guy rather than uh, a, a physician. And I, I met those guys when they had nine guys, and they were in a relatively small space on top of Jason's Deli here in Fayetteville. And they had one little online store. It was called Scrub Shopper. But the thing that was intriguing was not the fact that this was any whole lot different than any other e-commerce company. It was John. He was somebody that was truly a quantitative online savant, somebody that really got how to go from small to large in short order. So I worked with him to try to get him over this sort of aversion that he had to taking outside venture capital to get him comfortable with that. And the company, and it was his doing, I mean, I, I would yeah. like to say... I was maybe a catalyst to get them introduced to things, but it was fun to watch them go from a small company to a company that raised their last round at over a hundred million dollar yep. valuation. I invested in the series a and the series B round. And then we were exited when general Atlantic came in. Uh, it ended up being about a four X return in two years and 10 months. 
It was pretty good. It wasn't wow. a 10X. It wasn't a 100X. But in recent memory, that's the best one I've made. I actually heard him speak at the CPG school selling yeah. to the masses. Yeah. And I, he reminded me of Mark Zuckerberg. Like, he started talking and... It's like, oh, we made a few million here, and I guess we're not going to go back to doing a regular job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but an interesting story, and he's actually one person sometime in the future I'd like to interview. Oh, because yeah. That guy knows his stuff. He does. He There's nobody – he's probably in the top 10 or 15 people in the country in terms of understanding how to, how to monetize uh, uh, social advertising spend and how to growth hack companies from small to large. At one point, they went from 100,000 Facebook fans to 8 million. Wow. And they were on the early stages of figuring out how to monetize that Facebook ad spend. But, and you know, they've had some, he, he's actually on to his next thing now. He figured out the right time to exit himself, and he's oh, about wow. to do some more really cool stuff. He's that, like, I heard that company was on track to go uh, be worth a billion. Is that well, true? Well, that's his aspiration, right? You know, what the private equity guys ultimately do with it is for them to figure out. But yeah. he built a great asset that's employed a lot of people, that broke through a lot of barriers. And as much as anything else, if you think about what that did for this region, it made the statement that you could build that kind of company, a venture-backed, private equity-backed company that could go from small to large in a short amount of time. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah. That's what it was, it's about. It was cool. Absolutely. Uh, another question for about you. You've, over the years, had a lot of leadership experience. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what does it take to be a great leader? What kind of traits to be the great leader that is effective? I, I would say for me... And, and, of course, I grew up around that, right? I mean, a lot of people grow up with dads that had regular jobs. My dad was a command pilot. He flew in. He actually started his military career in World War II. He flew in Korea. He flew in Vietnam, combat missions, and the whole bit. And so a lot of people watch John Wayne on TV. He lived with me. That was my dad. And so he, I kind of had a really good example of, of what it takes to lead. He was fair, but he was tough. He was gone quite a bit when I was small, but but when he was there, he really made a difference in our lives. So one of the, some of the things I learned from him, watching how he dealt with people, was when you're in any kind of situation as a leader, it's important when things go right to pass along all the credit to your team because you're nothing without your team. And True. when things go wrong as a leader, you don't throw anybody under the bus. You take all the blame. That simple idea of you take the blame as a leader when things don't work and you pass along the credit when they do, that has helped me lead teams in three Fortune 500s and eight startups. I don't want to wow. say that I'm perfect. I could probably be a better manager. I could probably use resources better. But in terms of getting people to follow me to do things, that's been a secret because people know that I'm going to look out for their best interests if they're on my team. I'm going to look to figure out how to promote and empower them whenever I can. Have you read the book Leaders Eat Last? I haven't, actually. Okay, that, I'm going to say you explain basically what that book's about. I mean, it's all about taking blame if things go wrong yep. but things go right you got to support your team because without your team you're nothing you're nothing and and it, the thing too is is the difference between a managers and leaders is leaders understand that their number one asset is that team and their job they need to be servants to the team and as you think about it from a company ceo standpoint you've got three constituencies that are really important your team because you're nothing without your team your customers because they're your whole reason for being and your shareholders But the team has got to come first in a lot of this because without the team, you can't serve either of the other two groups. So if you build a great team, you hire people that are smarter than you, you don't feel challenged or threatened by people that that provide constructive criticism or that that will question what you say, you can do amazing things. And it's always about making sure that the team are kind of in the right positions doing the right things. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, A few more questions here before you go on. Uh, First... What is 
a lowest point in your life, and how did you overcome it? We all have low points, especially as entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. I I would well. So, it's a good question. There's been there's been a few, and and I'd say entrepreneurs that have done this more than one time, people that have had a, a life experience and thus they've just lived a charm life have faced obstacles. It can be a death of a family member. It can be it can be a major setback. It could be failing at something that you really thought you would succeed at. I would say one of the lower points, business wise was we, we had a business that was on track to do, we were probably on around a $3 million runway. It was in the early days of international telecommunications. We were positioning it for sale. I had two suitors actually buy the company, one that had already done an S1 public registration and another one that was looking, we're doing a roll-up with private equity money out of New York. Yeah. And this, this, this firm was actually based in Atlanta. I was excited. This would have been my very first exit on something I had built. Yeah. And the low point was I had the letter of intent. I've gone with the, the, the group out of Georgia that had offered way more money than the other one that was about to do the registration, uh, the public registration. I, I was a little bit greedy and a little bit stupid, right? <laughs> I didn't do enough due diligence. So I had this letter of intent. I was so excited about the deal closing. I sold my house in Maryland. I was prepared to move down to Georgia to join this company. And I turned the other guys away that offered a lot less money and that were going to go public. Well, the deal fell through because the acquiring company that had given me the LOI lost their private equity uh, funding out, wow. uh, from out of New York. And so I was kind of left holding the bag. You know, <laughs> We had expenses out in front of revenues. And so that resulted ultimately in the wind down of that business. It failed. And it was a tough failure to take. I mean, we had done what we thought all the right things. But what I learned from that was you never count on anything until a check clears. That, <laughs> that, was, that was part of it. And it was one of those sort of juvenile lessons. And I also learned a lot about don't live beyond your means. I mean, we weren't particularly frugal, right? We were living the life, and it was go, go, go. Yeah. And that had in sort of an indelible uh, impact on me. And, and I'll tell you, if I had been as successful as we might have been in that first real venture— I probably would have grown into an awful person. I would yeah. have thought it was too easy. So it was good to take that knock in the head, but that was definitely a low point. It's probably made you, I mean, into the person you are it, now, really made it, you better. Yeah, you, you can't, if, if everything you ever worked on works, you don't know how to accept failure when it comes, and when yeah. it comes, it's going to be a bigger blow than you can imagine. That's so, so true. Yeah, that's so true. What is your greatest skill right now? After everything you've done over the years, what would you consider your highest best skill as a person i i would i would say uh boy that's tough it's, I, you know i i don't like to do a whole lot of sort of self-aggrandizing commentary <laughs> i would say that getting people to work together is probably a big part of it yeah. and and being being articulate in a way to talk to people about the vision of what's possible and then showing them sort of concrete ways that they can get there yeah. I really, really enjoy mentoring, coaching, counseling, and teaching. Uh, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to do what I'm doing now or to teach at the university. I get the greatest satisfaction out of being able to influence other people that are trying to follow the path that I followed and then watching them actually do it. I mean, I don't care if anyone else knows other than I know, but it's just unbelievably gratifying to see them be successful. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason this podcast, to help others. Right. I mean, seeing people achieve their dreams is a feeling in itself. It's the best. It's better than any monetary reward ever. When you see, you know, a 22-year-old student that was in your class go out and build 
a venture-backed company that has a $10 million valuation and blue chip customers. And I've seen that happen a couple of times, and it's pretty amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. Two more things. What are three books, if you were to die tomorrow and you could leave something back for your family or anybody else, what are three books you would say for other viewers, listeners to read? I'll, I'll, I'll be specific, given your audience, to the books I like most out of the startup realm and the ones that I think are, and one of them I already mentioned. There's other great works that you could clearly look at. But for me, Running Lean by Ash Moria, I think it's the best of the lean startup books that have been written. Yep. It builds on what Steve Blanks and Eric Rees have done, but it's the best. It's the easiest to follow, and he, he does it with a lot of humility, and I, I really like that. So Running Lean would be one. The second one would be Venture Deals, the second edition that Brad Feld uh, has done. I think that that decodes some of the jargon in how to raise money in a scalable venture. It gives you as much knowledge as as your attorney or your CPA would have, uh, and which is kind of the tagline for it. So Running Lean, Venture Deals. And the third one, just because philosophically I really believe in what he says, is the book that Jay Baer wrote called Utility. This idea of approaching customer acquisition and sales with the idea that you're going to go out and be helpful, provide useful information, uh, and kind of invest in the relationship you're having with your audience, those three books are are kind of seminal from my point of view. I think they're really important, and they ought to be in every startup founder's library. From my point three of good view. books. I, I haven't read them. Yeah. I actually Ash. Yeah. I follow him. Yeah, and he uh, he's awesome. Yeah, exactly. But uh, good books. Last question I ask everybody sure. on the show: What are your top three successful tips to give to other young entrepreneurs out there? Never give up. Never give up. Those would be the first two. <laughs> and find people that are smarter than you that can help you. Those, those would be the, the three things. Just be tenacious and never give up. And I'd say that twice because that's all about it. It's having the grit to really see it through. And then hire and or partner with the smartest people you can find. If you do that, the rest of it will sort itself out. That's great advice. I 100% agree. Thank you for you coming bet. on the show. Thanks um, for having me on. It's great that you're I, doing this. I just want to say that you, what you're doing is awesome. I know you've been in the shoes before. It's so hard. People feel like they don't have any help out there. They don't know what to do. And your support, what you guys do, is great. And I'm so thankful for it. I'm sure everybody else... Anybody listening, what, where can they find you? Get yeah. Where are you at? Yeah, so check us out. Check us out at, uh, at startupjunkieconsulting.com. We, we are based in Northwest Arkansas, but we're interested in helping startup founders wherever they happen to be at startupjunkieconsulting.com. That's awesome. Yeah. Highly suggested, guys. Yeah. Go out. Check that out. You guys know what to do. It's the end of today's show. Go out there. Create something great and become unforgettable because life's too short not to. I'm Brandon Adams. We'll talk to you guys later.